but it was definitely a place uh, that had a certain magic to it. Welcome to Drexel's 10,000 Hours Podcast. Our goal is to mine the stories behind our region's innovators, inventors, and thought creators. We'll be talking to experts in subjects from dance to cybersecurity to find out what lies behind the passion for their work, the inspiration for their ideas, and the motivation for their creativity. I'm your host, Maurice Baymark. Danuta Niteski is the Dean of Libraries for Drexel University and a professor in the College of Computing and Informatics. Danuta has worked in university libraries around the country and has published widely on topics like library space and user-based evaluation of library services. So, I, I mean, I have so many questions that I wanted to ask you because libraries are so central to so many people's lives. Um, but I, I'd love to start with something personal and ask you, A, were you bookish as a child? And if not, was there some seminal moment um, that sort of told, foretold what you would do and the decisions you would make professionally as an adult? Hmm. That's a good question. So was I bookish as a child? Um, there's two ways of looking at that. Uh, did I was I exposed to books? Did I like um, uh, handling books and and experiencing whatever the magic was that linked the photo, the images and the uh, the the words on it to something else? Uh, yes, I grew up in a family that you know on Saturday mornings we were taken down as little kids to the local public library with the stack of books we borrowed the week or two before and were set free to go look on the shelves and pick out whatever else we wanted to look at next. And I must admit, though, I would look, I would select what I wanted to read or what I wanted to uh, engage with uh, mostly by what the illustrations looked like. If they were fun kind of looking illustrations and inviting and not old and, you know, boring looking, I would grab it. If there was nice colors and the like, this is when I was, you know, young in my early years. Now, was I bookish in the sense of being a reader? I will admit here, and as a librarian, this is a big, uh, sometimes surprise, but big admission. I really had difficulty learning how to read. I did not know how to read before I started school. Uh, my family were immigrants, and um, the language spoken at home is my, um, my mother's native tongue. A lot, but yet at the same time, my parents were very adamant that this is our country and we had to learn English and we had to be able to, uh, you know, integrate and merge into the culture and take it as our own. But I was my first uh, experience in school, even if, if I vaguely remember, even with kindergarten, was that somehow people thought you already knew how to read. And so when we started uh, in the curriculum having to learn how to read in first grade, I can remember, I, I grew up in Chicago, and it was a public Chicago school system, and I think I was in that period when the way they taught reading was, you looked at it, somehow magically you knew what these <laughs> words were, and that these were words, and and so many of the people uh, in my class already knew what they were, and I'm thinking, what is it that they see in these letters and all? And so uh, I can remember going home, and really crying but I don't know what they're talking about I don't know what's happening and I can remember to this day the picture of my sitting at our kitchen table and my father and my older brother who was taught 
a little bit differently, I think, um, trying to tell me, but my father said, sound it out. And he said, well, what am I supposed to sound out? How do I know what these letters sound like? And so it was, it was a frustrating way of learning to read. And it wasn't until I was in third grade that I reached the appropriate reading level uh, that one is supposed to be at. And then magic happened. I suddenly devoured books. And I had this friend of mine who was a single kid and his parents were willing to buy, her parents were willing to buy her any books she wanted. And so we went through on summers and we started with one series after the other. We read all the Nancy Drew books and we read all the Hardy Boy books yeah. and we just were devouring them. And it was a lot of fun and we would share our uh, books that we could have access to and we would uh, talk about them. And so that was really my first introduction to reading. I wonder, I mean, so you, you like I, spent a lot of time in libraries because you were taken there by your parents. And even if you couldn't read, was there something about the building and the books and the space and the librarians that you found appealing? As a child? Yeah. Well, uh, so I had two experiences, being fortunate to be living in Chicago, I would say, where the Chicago Public Library system was amazing. Um, so, but, you know, when I was alone and my parents, when I was little and my parents, you know, took my hand to go to the, to the public library, it was a relatively small, it was a Southside Public, I think it was the Blackstone Public Library in Southside Chicago, if I remember right. And it was one big room for the kids and it wasn't particularly, you know, there weren't all sorts of like now in public uh, libraries, you have these lovely furnitures and I was just shelves of books and they were at my level so I didn't have to stretch up too high and it was just intriguing what was what was behind these spines but um, as I got older and was able to and I was in my uh, uh, early teens and my parents allowed me to travel downtown by myself to get on the L and the the train that went from the south side downtown and actually the stop that I got off was right at the door of the downtown the main public library and that building as I learned later was incredible it was it was designed by um, uh, I believe it was a Shepley Bullfinch building that was just sparkling there was mosaics it was just a gorgeous building and later in life I saw when it was renovated it was even more so um, and there was just this incredible feeling of independence and trust that I could go there on my own and find a spot and I would go with the idea I had to do some reading for school and some of this was uh, still a late uh, grade school but high school as well um, and it was and I do remember it being a place that it was okay and expected of me to be just sitting there quietly working with the books and um it was more just being inspired by this environment and this this ambiance, but it was definitely a place uh, that had a certain magic to it. Yeah, those are lovely memories of Chicago. You should write a book. Um, <laughs> um, so I'm always fascinated with uh, people, especially around that formative time when you're about to go to college and what you think you're going to do with the rest of your life. So... What did you think you were going to do and be? I came out of high school with uh, identifying my strengths uh, in two areas, one in art 
but I realized that I could not produce art to support myself. I couldn't, I didn't have it in me. I, d- I couldn't imagine being able to produce on demand. So mm-hmm. I didn't see this as a way I was going to support myself, which was a strong motivation in my life. Yeah. And, and uh, the other half was math, because that was one of the few really good programs in my high school. So, um, so when I went to college, though, I, um, and the program the first that first year at Chicago was very much a liberal arts, but it was liberal arts to prepare you for graduate school. So um, I really didn't quite know what I was going to do there, but it it was just trying to get that broad education. And for various reasons, I transferred at the end of my first year. Yeah, I was not particularly. I was actually ready to say I'm going to drop out of college. This isn't what I wanted to do. Um, And I transferred to the University of uh, Wisconsin-Milwaukee. And so um, when I got there, it was a very different kind of college education. And in my third year, I I took very seriously that I had to declare a major. And again, I was taking courses. I took advanced math courses and all. And I turned to art history because if you can't be an artist, you become an art historian. So those were sort of the two tracks. So this third year had to declare a major. So I figured, oh, well, I guess I better do math. And so I went over to the math department and they said, no, you need a fourth, you need a fourth semester of calculus. I said, but I've got all these other math courses. They said, no, come back another semester. I said, but I have to fill out this form this week. <laughs> and so... Uh, I said, okay. And I, I thought, well, where else have I taken courses? And it was art history. So I go over to the art history department and they said, sure, we'd love to have you. <laughs> so that's how I became an art history major. <laughs> it would have been so, great if, if in art history, they were like, you need one more calculus to be an art history. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> to, to get one more math under your belt. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So anyway, so that's how I ended up with the major that I ended up with. And then I stayed there actually another year as a graduate student thinking I want to do that. And that is the precursor to how I became a librarian because in the middle of that first year as a graduate student, I was a TA and I was, I was supporting myself. Now this is the first time I was living alone. My parents moved away again from me and so I didn't have a home to live in. So I was supporting myself as a TA and I couldn't get a confirmation that I had an appointment for the next year. And I thought, oh, I'm going to support myself, you know, and, and so um, I decided, I, I, it was suggested to me, and family members said, librarians too, and they said, well, come back to Philly. My parents were in Philly at that time. We'll put you up for a year. We'll help you with room and board. And, you know, Drexel's got this uh, accredited good program. It's a good program in library science. And so get your degree, and then you can go off and be an art librarian. So that's what happened. And it was at that moment that I started to see, it was the time when automation was... Uh, an exciting application tool. It was sort of the new language of the profession that was needed. Um, And something happened to me while I was there. It was the exposure of thinking, wow, of all these different ways to really look. And it, it sort of brought together my interests of communications in different formats. It wasn't the uh, eight and a half by eleven Manila paper to express yourself. It was, and it was, it was connecting different forms of information for things. Um, my first professional job was at University of Tennessee, and I felt when I left the program here at Drexel, the thing that I was missing, having come with a little bit of introduction to a discipline way of thinking, art history, and with that came how you looked at research. 
and I felt we did not, I did not have a strong basis in really understanding research and research methods. Hmm. So when I was at Tennessee, I started taking courses in research and there the key strength was communications. And so it was courses in mass media. This was before, long before the internet. So it was, you know, doing public opinion surveys and mail surveys, learning all the things of that. And the guy who was sort of overseeing us said, you know, this, this <laughs> lunchtime degree of yours, why don't you just, uh, you know, write a thesis and get, get a degree. And so that's how I got my second master's in communications. And, and that was the moment that clicked to your answer, a long way of answering your second question. What was the moment that foretold what I wanted to do? It sort of brought together for me how, the field, the profession of librarianship is such an amazing way of anything, you know, it's bringing together, it's managing and, and looking at the patterns and the relationships of information as, as it connects people, which in a way is a form of communicating the expressions and the output of, you know, human endeavor, whether it's art forms or literary forms or text. And nowadays we're we're uh, challenged with uh, data and mm. different kinds of other kinds of languages, coding and software and, and the like. So that's how I got to be where I am now. So I'm okay. So I'd love to maybe take a deep dive into what, how you think about the philosophy of libraries. So what I mean by this is, so outside of lecture halls and teaching labs, um, nothing symbolizes sort of a university's commitment to its academic mission more than libraries. A lot of times they're the biggest, most opulent building on campuses. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the centrality of libraries and what they've meant to universities. And as things change, as the where we get our information and the way we do our research changes, if the library's mission has to change as well. I mean, clearly we don't need as big a building if, if libraries' goal is no longer to house every book that they can possibly get their hands on? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, to answer that, it might be a nice moment to bring in the challenge that brought me back to Drexel. Because, mm. uh, okay, so I was a graduate student here for my library degree, and then I left, and then I come back decades later, right? And my in between, my entire career has been working in those big research, large research libraries uh, in, in clearly established, you know, research institutions. Um, my path went from the University of Tennessee, Knoxville to the University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana, University of Maryland, College Park, and came here most recently from Yale. And so... Um, the, it was unquestioned, and, and truly what you described uh, in all of those, and particularly at, at Yale, as uh, my latest experience when I really got involved too in thinking about and, and helping to manage and, and translate what it means to have library as place. Right. Uh, and place defined as a space with an intentional design. And one of those intentions is the symbolism uh, and the symbolism and how the affordance of space inspires a behavior. And that goes back to my days at going into that main library on uh, Randolph Street in Chicago, the Chicago Public Library. It was an inspiring place. So it wasn't just because it housed books and uh, had people there, but it was 
there was something about that environment. So it wasn't just a space. It was a place that, that had with it an environment. So the challenge in coming here was partly uh, established by our late President Taki, uh, Papadakis, who had his moment of fame among librarians in a interview that was published in the Wall Street Journal where he was interviewed and was quoted as saying something to the effect, I don't remember exactly the quote now, but something to the effect that I'm not going to raise the budgets of the library just to um, house, you know, to to collect books and and build the buildings to house them and people that are going to sit there and read them. And that that had an impact on the culture here that went pretty deep that was sort of translated superficially as so why do you need a library exactly what you're asking and i was actually recruited with the notion that by the person recruited me they said you know this is a neglected library so come and redefine the library for the first part of the 21st century and you've got this small enough place that we can bring the people together and try to implement that here and a large enough place with large enough big ambitions that you've got all the issues you couldn't explore. It's not just about the place to house people and things, but it's the activity that occurs there. So now when we look at what are the contributions the library really can uniquely present, one of the areas, and this is a more recent particular interest of mine is to look at what about physical space contributes to learning and not just learning in the formal spaces like classrooms and labs where where the control of what happens is at the at the uh, foot of the of the faculty member or somebody who's external from the user so we have this this category of environments called among planners and all is starting to take on as a phrase, informal learning environments. Mm. And these are ones that nobody has, and the libraries are a great example of that. Nobody has to come to the library. Nobody's forced to come to the library. Nobody's even assigned here to come to the library. And yet they come. And it's a place where, as I was viewing it, we're looking at we're we're serving in this environment, trying to facilitate, and actually our goal is to, to inspire the quest for lifelong learning. We don't grade them. We don't evaluate their activities there. We even protect their right to do whatever, you know, for them to formulate what they want to do. But we're there as part of the environment to help um, guide them or help give them feedback as a form of, of their own self-assessment. But it's where the self-directed learner can actually, and in the true sense of a, of a Drexel um dragon (laughs) ambition it's an experience there's experiential learning so so that becomes in a in a sense the unique part of of what the spaces uh as place are there there is this feeling among some folks that with the rise of the internet and the access to information at the touch of a button that everybody carries around in their pocket that libraries seem like a thing of the past and a, and both an investment in space and resources that no longer have relevance. And I wonder, how would you respond to that both civically and, and sort of personally, since it's kind of your life's work to, uh, to carry on the uh, sort of the civic mission of libraries? Well, I think, first of all, in in asking that, there is a certain amount of 
uh, reality one can gauge if the assumption is true that everybody has access. And when we look at particularly activities in public libraries, um, where uh, society is looking still for places in public libraries from the start of, of access to the internet and the equipment needed to use it and the cognitive skills to know how to navigate it uh, have taken on that role for society. And it's, it's clear you know, that, that not everybody has access. Um, and I would even argue just anecdotally, there's evidence of, of students that come to Drexel that are paying the big bucks for it. They don't always have the access to the information or the ability to know how to navigate it. So as one is just even getting into the internet and as a channel, but then the other one, which I think is the bigger um, elephant in the room, is having access to the content. And now when you look at the, the economics of information yeah so you can you have an awful lot you can get out there uh on the internet again it's it's organized differently and it's sometimes harder and and we all know that if you if you do a search and i do a search uh based on the history of our searches because there's there's this question of how private is the way we look for stuff and does it affect the way we're going to be uh seeing results of the next search of course it does and part of that is because we're in you're in a access universe that's still um has a lot of uh influence on commodity of that very activity so i'd like to end with in your role as dean of the libraries what is your long-term vision for what libraries are both at drexel and Libraries across the country, especially those on college campuses, like what would you, how do you see them changing in the next 10 years, 20 years, and what would you like to see? Oh, wow. <laughs> um, I've made you library czar. <laughs> That's a, that question's a work in progress, <laughs> or that vision is a work in progress. So I, I guess... And I, I'm, I'm evolving this myself in my own you know, reflection, but I, I guess I still believe fundamentally in the purpose and the value of the concept of a library, whether it's the place or, or as you raised it, you know, the philosophy of what we're about. But we're, we're, we're in that space to help people learn and to help people uh, make sense of the world through uh, evidence that's been recorded and that's been shared and disseminated, and then that can be evaluated for its tr truth. You know, if it's if it's uh, misinformation or or something that's established, or if it's an opinion, or you know, all of this kind of stuff. And and so, part of what th that role of being uh, a, a hub or a or a, an energy for facilitating and fostering self-learning, self I think is really important. Um, and the other is then uh, as a place that it's a place that can help inspire that. So now that space is not only in physical brick and border space, but it's also in cyberspace. And I think there's still a huge uh, range of sort of designing those spaces. I think we're just starting. There's a lot of work, of course, on interfaces and all, but but does it does it really 
uh, introduce the sort of the value system of, of ensuring that there is free access of information, that there is um, a, an importance to protect people's privacy, uh, to not assume that um, just because somebody's looking at something or that anybody else should even know what they're looking at because you're, you're making some assumptions about them, which, which shouldn't even enter people's mind. And yet there's forces that now almost try to monetize that. A little yeah, bit. Exactly. Um, yeah. yeah. So I think those are still important. Now how they will function in an org as an organization will really depend on, I think the institutions and I think higher education is challenged in a lot of ways of thinking about what its role is. So um, whether there will be what of the different problems that we can help uniquely, what a library can help uniquely address, whether it ends up being in the responsibility of the library organization or or addressed somewhere else, it, it goes to those things. You know, how do you how do you best help reduce the cost of education by by having the most cost effective ways of providing the access to the needed resources and and looking at you know introducing even the concept and the commitments to open access, open science, still preserving that important role that particularly higher education has of disseminating the results of all of this knowledge and not, not just looking at it as a commodity that will bring profit. And that's a big one. Um, spaces, yes, they'll change. I do think, though, that there should be a recognition that people needed a, something different than just, I, I don't know if you're familiar with that, principle came a few years ago the third space you know that we we have a place where we work we have a place where we live and we have a work where we socially engage but and often there was a period there where everybody said oh libraries are are the third space i'm gonna say no we're the fourth space because we're 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 going beyond just that social thing because we have a purpose that of behaviors that we're trying to encourage inspire and and foster you know and that is this quest for for learning and and for being responsible in the way you use information and you seek it and you incorporate it into your decision making and your your uh, perspective on life. Well, Benita, it has been it. a real pleasure to talk to you this afternoon, and I really appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you very much. I was delighted to be invited to do this, and it uh, made me do a little more soul searching and thinking too about uh, what what we're trying to do. And uh, it's been it's been really a pleasure. Thanks very much. Drexel's ten thousand hour podcast is hosted by me, Maurice Baynard. Our producers are Sean Fitzpatrick and Nathan Barrick. Drexel's ten thousand hours podcast is powered by Drexel University. <laughs>